Hey, I want you to know that you can handle your temptation. Whatever that temptation is, from today's teaching, I want us to understand that we can not only just handle it, but there's a provision for us in it. And uh, when it comes to avoiding temptation, I find more often than not, especially with people that I talk with and even in my own life, that there is this tendency to rely on my own efforts, my own strengths. And I find that, that when I do that and when others do that, uh, sometimes it works out well, but more often than not, it ends up failing. It's not sustainable. And so we come up with all different kinds of strategies and even rely on the power of our own will. And again, it's not a bad intent, but it relies on our ability rather than on God's provision. And that's an important distinction. It relies on our ability rather than God's provision. Benedict of Nursia, he's a, well, he was a guy who lived between 480 and, and 543 uh, AD. So he, he was part of the early expressions of the church. He was actually really involved in the whole monastic movement. He was a monk and he even uh, created a rule for monasteries, which became the fundamental uh, baseline for Western monasticism today. And so Benedict sought to avoid temptation by wearing this really rough-haired shirt, you know, the kind of thing that you would put on, and, and it would just be nothing but itchy all the time, and just infuriatingly itchy. Um, living in a cave for three years where his food was uh, lowered to him through a hole in the top of the cave from a cord, he actually once threw himself into a clump of thorns, and it was all scarred up and bloody, covered with bleeding wounds, but he found that there was no escape from the temptation. So hiding away from people, wearing this itchy shirt for self-abasement, throwing himself into these thorns to distract himself, presumably from the temptations that he was experiencing, but he found that there was just no escape. It followed him wherever he went and in whatever he did. And so that tells me that even from the early on within the Christian movement, that there are people who were wrestling with sin and trying to figure out, how do I deal with this thing? How do I deal with temptation? How do I overcome temptation? And, and, and how do I live in a world that is filled with it? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is going to be a, a baseline passage for us as we look through the temptation of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to be looking in two places today. Uh, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and it says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And I love this passage because... It, it's, it's not that God won't give us more than we can handle. Like This is that passage that people often use to quote that statement, which is actually a false statement because God constantly gives us stuff that we can't handle because He wants us to rely on Him. But as it relates to temptation, He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, and then when we are tempted, He's also providing a way out so that we can endure it. What an encouragement from the Lord as it relates to our temptation. And so... If it's true that temptation is common to all men, then Jesus must have experienced temptation. And if Jesus experienced temptation, if it's true that God will always provide a way out of temptation, then Jesus must have employed God's way out. 
And so today, we're going to look at what did Jesus do in the face of temptation um, so that he could endure it. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, Lord, that we would just get a sense of encouragement and peace knowing that your intention for us is to be able to overcome temptation and that you provide a way out, uh, you help us to endure it, and Lord, that, uh, that you've equipped us in such a way that we are able to resist temptation. And so, Lord God, as we look into this, may we be strengthened, may we be encouraged, and may we be an encouragement to other people around us through this teaching. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, so Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, is where we are in our Gospel of Luke study. And in this chapter, we find some really significant themes. Um, there's a tremendous amount of depth here. It's not just simply that Jesus is tempted. There's a lot more things going on. So let's just dive right in and let's read it together. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And if you don't know where the Gospel of Luke is, in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked hard to put it there. Please don't be ashamed to use it. So Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 13. Here's what it says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written that man should not live on bread alone. The devil led him up a high, to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now this is an incredibly uh, important passage of Scripture because we have Jesus going immediately from being baptized in the Jordan, being whisked away by the Holy Spirit or led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Now, there's some themes in here that I think it's important that we uh, understand better, define a little bit more. And so one of those themes is, how does the Bible handle this language of the wilderness? Like, why is, why is the wilderness such an important theme in the Scripture? Well, a wilderness is often described as a home for demonic forces. And so you find that in Luke chapter 8, at Luke chapter 11. And it's, it's due to their association with this idea of emptiness or lack of civilization. It's barren. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of a land of chaos. And yet the same traits made it a good place to find solitude. So Jesus often uh, would be found in the wilderness as a temporary refuge where he would pray to the Father. And so we find that in Luke 1, uh, Luke 3, Luke 5, Luke 7. So it's kind of all over the place there, right? And so biblically, when you're talking about the wilderness, the wilderness is this place where it is understood that spiritual encounters happen, whether they be with the Lord or whether they be with 
demonic presences, in the wilderness, spiritual encounters take place. That is kind of what the understanding is for a biblical wilderness at this point. Now, along with this, you find this 40-day temptation that Jesus went into. And you may ask yourself, okay, first off, why the wilderness? Secondly, why these 40 days? Well, for some reason unknown to us, the number 40 seems to possess some mystic significance in the Scriptures. Moses was 40 days alone with God on, on uh, Horeb. Elijah fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before the vision and the voice came to him. Forty years was the period, too, of the wanderings of the chosen people in the wilderness. And so we have Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. It's, it's a fascinating thing because even here there's a pattern. Uh, that we don't often see. So we understand the plight of the Israelites when they were uh, right before the Exodus, they were in Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, they were in bondage, you could say. And God brought them out of Egypt through uh, the Red Sea and then into the wilderness. And so what you actually find is that uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, he, here's a parallel that, that we don't often look at. Uh, Jesus was also called out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 and verse 20, we find an angel coming to um, Joseph and, and telling him to, it is, it is now safe to leave Egypt. So he's called out of Egypt. So Israel is called out of Egypt. Jesus is called out of Egypt. You have Israel crossing the Red Sea. Actually, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 10, verses 1 to 4, this crossing of the Red Sea is actually referred to as a type of baptism. And so Israel coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, which is a type of baptism, and then ending up in the wilderness, and not just ending up in the wilderness, but ending up in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, you have Jesus called out of Egypt, he goes into his baptism in the Jordan and then immediately into the wilderness for 40 days. This is an interesting pattern, I think, actually, because it shows that Jesus does what Israel could not. You know, it's, it's like uh, Jesus is showing how the Exodus was supposed to take place. Israel shows it's failing in the Exodus. And so I find that as, an, as a really interesting pattern, as a, as a background to what's taking place here. Because we have to understand that when the original readers of this read this and understood this, they would have seen these patterns and would have been influenced uh, by these patterns in terms of how they understood the Gospel of Luke. Now, there's also another pattern. That pattern is actually in the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness carries with it the same structure that we find with Adam and Eve, and with Israel. Satan tempted our first parents with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. As a matter of fact, these are the categories that you could say all sin and all temptation fall under. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 16, it actually says it this way. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. And so when we understand that and we look back, for example, at Adam and Eve's temptation, Eve eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when she allows herself to believe it's good. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
I find that as it relates to temptation, that the devil will show us something that seems good to lead us to something bad. Now hang on to that for a moment, right? He, he, he shows us something that seems good to lead us to bad. Now, again, hang on to that, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we have this encounter with Adam and Eve, and specifically uh, the serpent and Eve. And it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, listen, when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. And so right here, you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the lust of the flesh is this idea that, like, so for example, food is good. There's nothing wrong with food. But the notion of the lust of the flesh is to, is to have something or, or fulfill a, a physical need in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord. That's the lust of the flesh, like where we're craving the things of the flesh rather than the things of the Lord. The lust of the eyes is, again, we're cry, craving the things of the world around us, that it looks amazing to us. The lust, and the pride of life is the idea that we elevate ourselves above God rather than submit ourselves to God. These are all the patterns that we find within temptations. And so likewise, Israel in the wilderness gave in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. As it relates to the lust of the flesh, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, and uh, verses 31 to 35, you find that as it relates to the flesh part, Israel started complaining about the food that God was providing. So... Understand this. There's this miracle food called manna that God is providing, and Israel begins to complain about this miracle food. So God provides, but Israel complains that, well, it's just not good enough. They desire more. They, they want meat. And so they talk about, you know, in Egypt they at least had meat, and, and so God provides quail, and then the quail, you know, they, they, um, they just went too far with the quail and, 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 and overate, and, and God's anger burned against them. And so you have this lust of the flesh. They complained about the manna that God had given them, dwelling in the past, wishing that they were still in slavery in Egypt, uh, because there, again, they at least had meat. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7 to 8, referencing Numbers 25, 9, it says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. The people who the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up and, to indulge in, in revelry, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. So in Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites began worshiping Baal. And as the Israelites lived in a place called Shittim, the people began to have these sexual relationships with the daughters of Moab. And, and it, wasn't, it was within God's law that said that they are not to intermarry with other tribes because God wanted to keep his people pure. Um, and, and so to, as a stand-apart people. Because when they intermarry, they also then tend to follow after the gods of the women that they would marry. And so there was this, um, this event that took place where 23,000 people, uh, actually in, in Numbers 25, it records it as, as ultimately 24,000 people who died as, a, as it relates to this. And then the pride of life, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, it says, we should not test Christ as some of they did, them did, again, referring back to the wilderness wanderings, and were killed by snakes. 
and not grumble as some of them did when they were killed by a destroying angel. And so we find that when the devil came to test Jesus specifically, the second Adam, he did so with temptations that corresponded or that he utilized when he was going after Adam and Eve and going after the Israelites in the wilderness. And so Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh. So if you look at your scripture in Luke chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, right? So basically you're going to prove yourself here. If you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we read, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. This is in reference to Israel. And we find, actually, in the beginning of this passage, it says that Jesus was hungry after these uh, 40 days in the wilderness. So he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither of you nor your ancestors had known. So this was a brand new thing. It was a miracle from God to teach you, listen, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of of the Lord. So what Jesus is responding to here is he's saying to the devil, listen, you can say all this stuff. Yeah, do, do I have the authority, the power, the, the miraculous ability to be able to turn a stone into bread? Sure. But man does not live on bread alone. What are they saying here in Deuteronomy? Talking about the bread of heaven, right? The miracle of God that, that makes this bread fall from heaven. And the response there is man does not live on bread alone by, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Jesus' response to the devil. So I want you to take note here. Did the devil lie to Jesus? The answer is no. He didn't. It is true that Jesus, being the Son of God, could turn this stone into bread. But it is equally true and more importantly true that Jesus was saying, hey, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So where God says, I'm going to take care of you, then we've got to trust that. Right? And so the devil here, using something good, bread, to try to lead Jesus to something potentially bad. The lust of the eyes, this is Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. It says this, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus responds to him saying, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, again, we go back to that wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. And so it's, again, this idea of the devil proclaiming a truth. All, all this authority has been given to him, and he's able to give it to anyone he chooses. That's, part, that's true. And yet Jesus, again, with a higher truth, a more full truth, is saying, no, listen, I am going to fear the Lord, and I'm going to serve Him only, I'm going to worship Him only. And so this is where we're talking about the lust of the eyes. Jesus has shown all this stuff, and He says, no. No. God calls His Son Israel to worship Him. Instead, Israel makes a calf and bows before it. Instead of trusting in God, they made their own way, and Jesus will do what Israel failed to do. He will worship and serve God only. And then you have this pride of life 
in Luke chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. It says, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on a high point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and guard you carefully. They will lift up your ha- their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. And so it's interesting because even within this passage, the devil's quoting scripture. He's actually quoting Psalm 91 verse 11 where it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put your Lord God Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massah. So in in, in Massah, they were, again, they were complaining, again, in in, in the wilderness and and just constantly putting God to the test. Like, if God's with us, then why doesn't he provide this and that? You know, all these kinds of things. And really, it's the same kind of human questions that we ask as well. Look, if God is here, why doesn't he do this? Or why hasn't God done that? when we are dissatisfied with what's taking place. We're tempted towards ourselves and our own good, um, even though God has our ultimate good in mind. So there's one difference between Jesus' experience and Adam and Israel under temptation. The prodigal son, uh, or the protological son, Adam, right? This is, this is the human son that God had made, right? The creation, first man. You have the typological son, which is a, a, in the Bible, there's this idea of typology where these are Christ representations. Uh, They're kind of a shadow of what Christ actually is. And so they're a type of Christ typology. And so you have Israel being a typology and they disobeyed. And then you have Jesus, the actual son of God, the eschatological son who obeys. You have these patterns that develop, and I, and I have to believe that these patterns are present in our own lives today. Jesus answers the temple, or sorry, Jesus answers the devil with Scripture. But not just with Scripture. Uh, we, we actually find that, that he submits to the Lord in all of these things. In this passage, we learn that Jesus won the victory over the devil's temptation as a man and becomes our champion. In Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When the devil had finished his tempting, he left him for an opportune time. Now, I don't know if there were more times of temptation. The scripture doesn't really indicate that for us. We're not really told about it. But I do believe that we can make a strong argument for there being a temptation towards Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, being a more opportune time. And later on in our Luke series, we'll look at this. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 46, it says, Jesus went out as usual, to the Mount of Olives. This is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. You hear that? Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
It's what was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep and exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So I, I, I believe that you can make a really good argument that the opportune time that the devil could have come back for this temptation was where you have this wrestling match for Jesus because he's in anguish. He's, um, he actually asks, hey, if there's any other way, can you take this cup from me? And knowing that there isn't any other way, he submits. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so Jesus gives victory over the devil's temptation. We also learn from Jesus. Um, we also learn from Jesus, who became our ultimate example in dealing with temptation. Right, like every single time he was tempted, he would say, "It is written," or "It is said." So Jesus respected the Scripture as God's word and has authority over the devil's lies, right? Because God's word is truth, and truth overcomes lies. We can't defeat the devil or his temptations with human wisdom, like with psychology and philosophy, though these things may be important in our understanding of self. But we also can't overcome temptation with trusting in our own experience. What we find in this passage is that submission to God through the Word of God is the only spiritual weapon that we have that's effective against Satan's temptations. Jesus' pattern of submission to His Father's will is, through the Word, is the way out of the temptation for us as well. So every single time the devil tempts Jesus, Jesus' words were an act of submission. Every single time, it's about putting God first. It's about putting him above, right? Like man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father, right? So, so bread's important, but you can't live on that alone. You've got to submit to God. You, you know, the, don't worship anyone else. Don't test the Lord. All of this is an act of submission of self to the Lord, and using the Word of God in that act of submission to be able to resist the devil's temptations, right? So we, we submit ourselves to the Lord, we hang on to truth in order to be able to resist temptation. As a matter of fact, that pattern is actually explained to us as well uh, with Jesus' half-brother James. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Some passages, uh, some translations will say, Humble yourselves therefore to the Lord. Uh, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what did Jesus do in the garden? What did Jesus do in, in the wilderness, very specifically? He submitted himself to the Lord, resisted the devil, and the devil went away. That's the pattern. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So my encouragement then for us is this. Let's depend on Jesus and his words so that we may be able to overcome the devil's temptations win the spiritual victory, and give glory to God. Again, we go back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So everyone's dealing with the same stuff. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. All of us are dealing with the same things. So it's common to all of us, even common to Jesus. Jesus shows us the way out of it. 
And then it continues on. It says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Right? So God is faithful. He's present. He's going to be there with you. And, he's, and he has authority over this. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But then he says this. But when you are tempted, okay, when you are tempted, you're going to be tempted. It says, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So it doesn't say he's going to take it away. He says he's going to provide a way out so that we can endure. And and so there's this idea of, hey, listen, God's not going to, he's got authority over all of this. He's not going to let things happen uh, temptation-wise that we can't bear. And then when we're tempted, he's providing a way out so that we can endure it. And so he's not taking away the temptation. He's giving us the strength and the way out in it. And so God is still for us then. He loves us. He's not wanting us to fail. He's ready to help us. And one way that he helps believers is to, act, and is to actively work in our lives to keep us from being tempted beyond what we can resist. That's the good news in this. That's the encouragement. God's not going to let us get in over our heads as it relates to temptation. And he's going to provide this way out. Now, we may not always believe that we can overcome temptation. And Satan might encourage us to see some temptations as irresistible. God promises that we can, in the power of his Holy Spirit, resist any temptation by trusting in the Lord. Right? It's like so submitting to God and relying on his word because he's our way out. He's our way out. And so Jesus' response in the garden, Jesus' response in the wilderness, is to resist the devil by humbling himself to the Lord through his word to deal with the lies that he was dealing with. And he overcame. James tells us that we have that same ability, same opportunity in life. Jesus models it. James tells us that this thing is true for us as well. And I want to encourage you in knowing that God is for you. He's not going to let you get tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he's going to provide for your way out. And that way out is through humility and submission to him and an active understanding of his word to be able to use it against the devil's lies. Why? Because ultimately, he's our way out. God is our way out of temptation. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that as we deal with things like temptation, that, Lord, our first response is not to try to go through the power of our own will and create strategies, but rather, Lord, to surrender our will ourselves to you, be acquainted with your word so that we can handle truth in the face of the lies because it's the lies that are tempting us. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand that you will provide a way out for us, and that way out ultimately is you and the tools that you provide. In your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.